Welcome to this week's episode of the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee, flying solo this week as Brianne has got a million things going on. We have got a fabulous guest, Joseph Mikey, the director of the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Nobody is better versed on the geopolitics of energy and climate change and a global energy transition. Joseph, thank you for joining us here on the Plugged In Podcast. Thank you, Neil. You're far too kind, but I'm really happy to be with you today. Well, let's dive right in. I know you are an IEA junkie. IEA says peak emissions are in sight. What was your take on that analysis and do you buy it? And, and what, what do you think the bigger global picture is on the emissions front? Yeah. So the IEA's World Energy Outlook came out and I think it shows us a couple things. For a while now, the trend in their outlook has been that emissions outlooks or emissions forecasts were looking better and better from a climate perspective. And ever since COVID set in, there's been this sort of dance around, do we think emissions are peaking? When will they peak? Is it later this decade? Have they already peaked? And I think what we're seeing out of the EIA now is real confirmation that the economics of the energy system have changed a lot. Policies are setting in around the world to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So it's it's sort of further evidence that we are somewhere near peak. We might see a year or two of aberrations, but from here on forward, the picture that emissions are going to continue to grow and grow and grow is just not accurate. How do you think the war in Ukraine has impacted the global emissions picture? I know initially there was some concern that the potential removal of Russian gas from the global energy mix would revive, you know, higher carbon emitting resources like coal. But I've seen some reports recently that people actually think in a weird way, the war may actually accelerate the transition to cleaner energy and bring down the trajectory of emissions what do you think the impact of the war long term will be? Or do we not even know yet? I think that, that we don't exactly know, but a little bit depends on where you're located in the world. I think we can definitely assess that for Europe, the war has married the what was already a relatively ambitious climate plan with a strong imperative to increase energy security, right? Russia wrested gas supply away from Europe in response to economic sanctions that followed the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I think it's clear that those are not going to come back at the volume that they were at previously. This has sent Europe looking for other energy sources. Now, because renewables were already a big part of their plan, but meeting their climate goals was going to be challenging for a variety of other reasons. Issues you're familiar with, like siting and permitting and moving enough capital into, into the marketplace to build out all that clean energy infrastructure. Now, that drive in Europe is accompanied by the need to like keep the lights on and keep it relatively affordable. So in Europe, clear acceleration. That's true even as they're bringing in higher volumes of liquefied natural gas or LNG to maintain energy security in the meantime. There's an argument, a lot of that LNG is coming from the United States, some from Qatar, that that is itself potentially a climate positive because of the gas produced in the US or in Qatar is thought to be cleaner than a lot of Russian gas. There's a debate there. Um, but that is also, you know, even if they're just replacing lost Russian supply, there's, there's not a big climate story there. On the other hand, there is a challenge in that to maintain security, what we're seeing is coal plants being re- Refired or or run at a much higher capacity than they were before. 
I think those stories tend to be more of an aesthetic problem than a, than a long-term emissions problem. That's just the process of keeping the lights on. The last thing I think is like the global reverberations of all this. That's where I'm really not sure how to view the, the impact of the war, right? LNG prices are very high. That might move a lot of energy planners in South Asia or in other places that would see LNG as a, a bridge fuel off of coal and toward a modern clean energy system one that was oriented toward net zero, that may make LNG less of a less of an appealing option over time. So there's a way in which you could see like a more rapid energy transition, particularly in Europe, but you might see some slowing factors elsewhere. So in Europe, the timing complications are really relevant to what's happening here domestically in the US. I think US LNG exporters are looking for longer term contracts, but if Europe is looking for a shorter bridge, what will the impact of that be for U.S. LNG and its possibilities in Europe? Well, it's clearly very challenging, right? So immediately after the conflict or in the months, in the couple, first couple months afterward, you saw a lot of diplomatic effort between the U.S. and the EU trying to figure out how do we secure European access to LNG. And there was a, a couple pledges made about the number of cargoes or the volumes that would be sent from the U.S. And a lot of that has been accomplished, as you know, entirely through market dynamics, right? Europeans are paying a lot to buy LNG off of the global market, and that market has gotten super, super tight. What we haven't yet seen is a sort of transatlantic effort to figure out exactly that puzzle that you raise. How do you expand capacity to add LNG supply, which Europe needs, and the world actually, it would really help loosen the world market without Europe violating its climate ambitions. We've done a little bit of work on this at CSIS, right? We've published analysis looking at, well, if you had sort of the cleanest possible version of LNG export, if you were using the tax credits, to implement carbon capture and storage at your um, liquefaction facilities, if you were using direct air capture to offset the emissions uh, of the cargo itself, what kind of picture can you paint for the long-term sort of net zero compatibility of US LNG? We'll see some of that stuff develop. I think there's also like a wide open space for more creative means of, of financing those projects, right? That position of real necessity now and they're not sure how long they're going to need that gas supply. But we also know that when Europe may not need it 10 or 15 years from now, an intentional mechanism that could use LNG supply to reduce coal emissions elsewhere would be quite useful from a climate perspective. That is a tool where I think there's absolutely some diplomatic effort to be done. And I'd love to see our government and the Europeans be a little more thoughtful on that. I think that I'm relatively bullish on those conversations. The time just hasn't been quite right as Europe was stealing itself for winter 2022-23. We've been focused so much on Europe and what the implications would be, but I've heard you make this point elsewhere that Europe can largely afford expensive gas, at least for the foreseeable future, but that tight supplies are actually really hurting poorer economies that are also dependent on gas. Are we too focused on Europe? And should we be looking at US LNG playing a role in perhaps helping the developing world? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a lot of the same challenges apply there as well, but it is true. The global LNG market was not really designed for how much demand is being placed on it right now. And the price environment has caused like real pain and, and crises. You can put examples in Pakistan, Sri Lanka. A lot of those places are not necessarily in a position to like finance LNG terminals. Resolving that kind of insecurity issue I think can be done through the conversation where we're trying to figure out how do you expand 
energy capacity in a way that is consistent with global climate goals. I think there's still a lot of room to do that, but we need a sort of like relatively high level diplomatic process that will allow it to happen because you need to make sure that you're actually going to have a financing environment that lower income countries can take advantage of, that the international development institutions are going to be able to finance infrastructure projects. And then we we'll probably need to think carefully around, you know, how do you make that system robust to potential future uses of hydrogen or other liquid energy carriers. We've got another cop coming up. Seems like we just had the last one. What do you see as the big issues that leaders will be discussing? And what role do you think energy security will play around the broader carbon mitigation conversation at this year's COP? That's a great question. I mean, I'm relatively confident that energy security, the price environment that we find ourselves in, is going to be highlighted at this COP in a way that we haven't seen at least in the last few years. That's mainly because located in Egypt with a higher sense of representation or actual representation of people from emerging markets and developing countries, the challenging price environment is going to be, I think, part of the conversation, right? The political aesthetics of it are challenging. Look at Europe, where they're trying to buy up gas from all over the world and at the same time talking to developing countries about making a green transition really, really fast. And I think that a lot of those tensions are going to come to the surface. The big areas you know, I expect to see a lot of conversation around are on that sort of the challenges of meeting energy security needs of the developing world while decarbonizing the global economy, making sure there's enough investment going into not just energy of all kinds, but in particular, clean energy to help developing countries meet their climate goals. One of the conversations that's existed since the beginning of the, of the UNFCCC, the relative responsibilities of developed and developing countries. Fascinating look at their national picture. For our listeners, let's bring it back home to the U.S. a little bit. There have been some major developments on the policy front. I think at the start of this Congress, you were looking at very, very narrow Democratic margins in the House, a 50-50 Senate. I think a lot of folks in the climate and clean energy community were not particularly optimistic about the likelihood of getting any kind of significant legislation done. Yet here we are, you know, almost two years later, and you had the what was once called the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is now the IIJA, and recently the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, What's your take on these two legislative achievements of the past Congress? Are these significant outcomes? Will they have a meaningful effect on the energy transition and on mitigating emissions? Or will we look back in a few years and say they fell well below the mark? Well, that's a great question. I think you have to admit that these are significant legislative advancements or accomplishments, right? As you know, navigating that mixture of policy and procedure, especially when you're talking about using the budget reconciliation process, is no easy feat. I also think that, like Senator Manchin, deserves a lot of credit for tying a lot of the conditions, on, especially on the IRA, the IRA, to energy security and to a sort of as tech neutral an approach as you can. We're going to see a lot of companies try to make investments and try to take advantage of these subsidies. It's going to be very profitable to produce clean hydrogen in the United States with the subsidy packages that are involved here. There's some really interesting contours to this kind of legislation about domestic content requirements and these kind of secondary goals of bringing manufacturing and supply chains, if not into the United States, closer to the United States. That's kind of echoing a lot of tensions we see in other parts of the economy with China. I do think on the emissions front, the story is relatively mixed. The Rhodium Group is one of the best analysis shops around. They've looked carefully at these packages. And I want to say, if I recall the numbers correctly, they assumed in a sort of business as usual scenario 
emissions would be down about 30% against the reference level in 2030. Bear in mind, the president's goal is 50% reduction. With the IRA, I think their estimates like 36 to 38%. So you're talking about a lot of spending for a 6 to 8% additional emissions reduction. I think that reality is really yet to set in. What do we need to see further emissions reductions? Well, more policy would potentially be helpful. The EPA is probably going to try and write regulations. Should also look for ways for the existing package to be more effective. I think permitting reform is high on my list and carbon border adjustment is also high on my list. Yeah, let's drill in on those a little bit. And to that rhodium analysis, I've read elsewhere that if we don't see a significant build out out of transmission in this country, then even those modest projected carbon reductions won't be realized. But we're recognizing that it's just really hard to get anything built in this country. You've been a real thought leader on permitting reform. There was this legislative sidecar that Senator Manchin attempted to attach to the temporary CR and failed. What's your sense on that package? Is it still alive in your view, potentially in the lame duck? And how important is it going to be to ensure that we have policies in place in the U.S. that allow us to do the significant amount of building that we need to do to achieve some of these carbon reduction goals? It's funny when you think about the idea of a Washington consensus and over, I'm sure, your career in in D.C., the idea that there is a Washington consensus, given the high level of polarization now is perhaps a little suspect. But it is on permitting. I think we actually find ourselves in a place where leaders on both sides of the aisle really see the challenges here. There's a lot of incentives if you have a progressive worldview to have permitting to help build out more clean energy, build more affordable housing. And on the Republican side, one of the key barriers to making capital investment in the United States, and one of the things you hear from nearly every business leader who wants to do that is that permitting is a challenge. So this is a place where a real consensus, in my opinion, exists. I'd be happy to hear if you hear the same things. It would make a meaningful difference if we were able to open up the floodgates for infrastructure investment from the private sector, and with the background of IRA, with the economics of clean energy where they are anyway, a lot of it would work out for our energy system moving more quickly toward net zero. The exact challenges, the balances that you have to strike to realize that consensus between natural gas pipelines and fossil infrastructure, which is still very popular with Republicans, and the clean energy challenges of like how do you actually design and build a much larger clean energy system and, and the pressure points that that can place, that is not an easy political task. But I think there's probably a lot of room for horse trading because everybody agrees that permitting is a big issue. I don't know that I have a strong opinion on whether or not the the mansion bill is going to live a second life in the lame duck or a version that would be more conciliatory toward Republican preferences might emerge. But I do think whether it's the lame duck or next Congress, permitting reform is not going to go away. The politics on the mansion bill are really, really fascinating. He's got sort of as close to guaranteed approval of the Mountain Valley pipeline as you can get. And that's something that a lot of Republican senators in the footprint of that pipeline are very, very supportive of. And you would think that that could be the turn in the Rubik's Cube that gets you to a consensus. But what's interesting is that the MVP footprint sort of aligns with the footprint of some of the Southeast and Mid-Atlantic electric utilities that don't like the transmission language. They don't like the (laughs) idea of giving supersized power to override decisions by their local state 
commissions and those footprints overlap which makes consensus really tricky if the transmission language comes out then i think you lose a lot of interest for democrats to move it but if it stays in you put those republican mvp senators in a box it's really really fascinating the whole conversation around permitting confounds me you know republicans have been frustrated about permitting for a long time and want to see improvements you would think even modest improvements would be a victory over the status quo. But I think a lot of Democrats need to revisit and re-examine their approach to permitting. The historical opponents of fossil fuel infrastructure are now the proponents of building out all this clean energy infrastructure to get renewables onto the grid. That means we're going to need to better align permitting in this country to get stuff built. So I agree with you. No way that this conversation ends anytime soon. I think it's one of the critical energy policy and infrastructure discussions of the coming years. Pivoting a little bit, you, you brought up the border carbon adjustment, and we've had a couple of other guests on to to talk about this. So our listeners have some familiarity. I'm with you. I I see growing appeal and interest in this idea of leveraging America's carbon advantage and utilizing that advantage over China, over Russia. Talk a little bit about some of the research and work you've done in this space. And do you think that there's room for a discussion on this in 2023 to 2025 window when we may potentially have divided government? Yeah, I'm happy to do so. I mean, for me, it, it starts at very first principles. And those are to tackle this climate problem, you want to have a basket of sticks and carrots. My views on this have probably evolved over time. I used to have a much more sort of economic centric point of view, like price carbon, leave everything else alone. And, you know, I've come to learn that politics of that are challenging. It doesn't solve every issue. And so having a mixture of tools seems to be the most pragmatic path forward. And carbon border adjustment, I think, is important for a couple reasons. We know that the EU is moving ahead with its own carbon border adjustment, which is meant to adjust the carbon price associated with their cap and trade regime, right? This prevents leakage. It prevents the emissions from going abroad. A lot of the critiques that you see about environmental regulation in the United States being part of the story that led to like the shipping of manufacturing jobs abroad are a leakage story, right? Sending pollution to China and buying goods instead. And a border adjustment is a tool to sort of like reflect in our imports and our exports, if you're pricing carbon domestically, the effort that's going on inside the country. When you have something like IRA, which is going to expend a bunch of effort to make clean energy investments, the next natural thing is thinking about, okay, how do we create a system of sticks and carrots that are going to apply internationally. And that's where I think border adjustment is drawing a lot of attention. It's another place where policy balances are important. There's a way that border adjustments become protectionism, and that's probably not what we want to seek. I think be a little careful about tearing down the, the like global trade system. But at the same time, with Europe moving ahead and the US and Europe working together to have a mechanism that says we're together we're the largest market in the world and we want to buy cleaner and cleaner goods, I think would, would make a huge difference to global climate outcomes. A lot of this would have a direct impact on China. And I think that's where a lot of the domestic appeal comes from on a bipartisan basis in pursuing such a policy. But you would think a policy designed to hurt China or its emissions profile would hit India as well. And India is a valuable ally to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to structure the policy to really target China's emissions while giving our ally India some room to grow? Or is India going to be a casualty of this larger policy? 
No, that's not exactly how I would think about it. Instead, I would say like, is there a way that the penalty or the perceived penalty that works with a border adjustment can be matched with an increase in capacity to decarbonize? And I don't know that you need to apply this differentially between China and India. That's the way I would think about it. So the EU, as they're constructing their border adjustment, has some really clever stuff in there. Because you don't want to overly punish developing countries which are exporting to the EU. So they have a mechanism by which some of the money that gets raised can be used to increase the capacity to decarbonize in countries that the EU trades with and are subject to this adjustment. I think as this conversation matures, ideas like that become really interesting. That's fascinating. And, and maybe that's where this needs to go. Last point on this, I have heard some say in order to be WTO compliant long term for this policy to work, you have to have a domestic price on carbon. Is that your view? I, I read the trade lawyers and I accept their judgments. And that tends to say that you need to have a domestic price. I will make a couple observations, though. One, the IRA, which creates subsidies for clean energy, has all sorts of conditions on domestic content requirements and labor requirements, which we know flout WTO rules. And so again, a place where my my opinions have sort of matured, it's not clear to me that WTO compliance is a headline issue for US policy anymore. Where I think the analysis community can do a better job is is not just rating these policy designs by WTO compliance, but instead thinking about what is the real implication of doing this and I think there's a longer term conversation around like, how do global trade rules, how are they going to work amidst decarbonization? Covered a lot on the international front. We've talked a little bit about the federal legislative arena. I want to pivot a little bit to the courts. There was a lot of hubbub this summer when the Supreme Court ruled in West Virginia versus EPA. A lot of concern from folks that this would be the end of kind of climate regulation in the U.S. You wrote a piece in the Washington Post that you didn't think that was the case. Can you kind of fill our listeners in on your views on what the regulatory sphere might look like post West Virginia versus EPA? So West Virginia versus EPA, the issue in front of the court was really the how expansive the EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions is. Roughly speaking, you know, the question is, does that law apply such that EPA can write regulations to govern plants? Or can it treat like the power system in a state as something to be regulated? And this is important because the way EPA designed the Clean Power Plan under the Obama administration, as you well know, Neil, had used that sort of systems-based approach to introduce a bunch of compliance mechanisms for the regulation, like building of new renewables, as opposed to putting a scrubber on top of a, of a smokestack to make the exhaust of a power plant cleaner. That expansive definition is what the court said EPA was not able to do. So there are some subtleties to this overall judgment, but in my opinion, that doesn't take away the ability of the EPA to use regulation to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the power sector, definitely not from the transportation sector, regulating car efficiency and other things. So in that context, the authority's not gone away. But I was making a larger argument in the piece that the regulatory approach, I think it will be part of the overall climate portfolio. I don't think that authority is going away. The court didn't strip it entirely. But for the kinds of emissions reductions we want to see and the scale and pace of transition we should have to be responsive to climate risks and carve out for ourselves a leadership position in the new energy economy, we needed congressional action. Lo and behold, a month later, Congress answered my call. 
however imperfectly they did it. Pretty remarkable. Timing is everything. As we're winding down here, listeners of the podcast know that we like to get into substantive issues with our guests, but we like to end with something light about our guests. I've known you for a while. I know some things about you, including your soccer background. You don't have to talk about that, but I'm happy to dive into that a little bit. But let's end this episode of Plugged In with something light for our listeners that goes along with your vast energy expertise. One thing I really enjoy, and I don't hesitate to admit it, I like trashy reality TV, man. What's your go-to? Housewives? You go uh, The Bachelor, Bachelorette? My wife and I, we watch The Bachelor, Bachelorette. We've been watching this show on Netflix, Love is Blind, which is like truly deranged. These contestants date each other behind a frosted glass window and decide to get <laughs> engaged without ever seeing each other. And then can they fall in love and without a physical connection or absent the complications of what the other person looks like? It is an absolutely bizarre ride. Very weird, but a lot of fun. I love it. And I think it's great for our listeners to know that someone can be both deep in expertise on a wide array of subjects, but also have time and space in one's brain to uh, absorb love is blind. Joseph, thank you so much for joining this week's episode of the Plugged In Podcast. Always love talking shop with you. Hey, pleasure to be here, Neil. Thank you for all you do and uh, talk to you soon. Thanks so much again for listening to Season 3 of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time. You can keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and by subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter, written by me, Brianne Depish, and my co-author, Jeremy Beeman. 